Welcome to the Respect Food Rolls podcast, a limited run series in which I detail my take on some of the big issues on food, eating, health, and weight that are floating around today, both in the blogosphere and more importantly, in the YouTubeosphere. I try to take a common sense approach that's grounded in solid research and based a lot on my own observations. I hope you'll come back every week during the run of this show, which at this point is projected to be about 12 episodes, but we'll see how long-winded I get. In the meantime, take a listen. Hello, and welcome to episode number two of the Limited Run podcast series, Respect Food Roles. I'm Debbie Simons, and today I'm talking about how people in this day and age, especially in our Western culture, make food choices. And the title of this episode, therefore, is Where Are You on the Food Choices Pyramid? Now, I will point out here that not everybody's actually on this pyramid. There are people who just simply go through their days eating what's put in front of them, eating on impulse, and don't really make any mindful choices at all. So making choices is always better than not making choices. So if you don't recognize yourself on any one of the three levels of this food choice pyramid, then I'd encourage you to do a little bit of thinking about how you eat. But for most of us, we do make choices. We do make deliberate choices about what we put into our mouths every day. And we can have those choices being determined by any number of factors. I've divided these factors up into three categories and I've put them on a pyramid. And if you know your FDA history, you know that the food choice pyramid is also a staple of the dietary guidelines that get handed down from on high periodically. If you want to just think of it as a triangle, you can do that. But I think the pyramid is a little bit more vivid. So let's start out at the very top of the pyramid. And of course, this is, it's the point. It's the smallest part, and it's also, let's face it, a sharp point. It can be dangerous. And so it seems fitting that the food choices that I put at the very top are the most dangerous. They also make up the smallest percentage of the population. And so I've labeled this part of the food choice pyramid choices that are made due to medical issues. True, medical, diagnosable, scientifically based health issues. Please note my very careful wording here. And there are three basic elements that I'm talking about. I'm sure that there are other issues and conditions that could be put in this part of the pyramid. But here I'm talking about the most common medically related food choices, and those would fall into the categories of allergies, intolerances, and then actual diseases. 
So let's look at allergies first, because most of us are familiar with this condition on at least a minor level. Many of you listening to this podcast may actually have a food-related allergy. And let me insert again the word true, a true food-related allergy. I'm going to be talking a lot about less scientifically based food choices on level number three. But right here, I'm talking about conditions that have clear-cut symptoms. You can get treatment for them at the doctor's office. Although sadly, in the realm of food allergies, for the most part, the treatment is simply don't eat that food that you're allergic to. But there are some tests that can be given to nail down food allergies. The most valid one from the viewpoint of most reputable allergists, and this would include a man I went to see for several years, is simply the elimination diet. Most allergists will say that the blood test that used to be used for food allergies is not valid, and neither are those skin prick tests that are used for environmental allergies. The food elimination diet, of course, simply has you try to pinpoint a specific food that you think you're allergic to, you eliminate it from your diet, you wait several weeks, and it does take some time, then you reintroduce the food and you see if you get a reaction. So it can take a long time. Food elimination challenges and diets are indeed very challenging. But for many people, I would say for most people with true food allergies, it's very clear what it is that's causing the problem. These people eat a certain food and sometimes within minutes, within seconds, it almost seems for some of them instantaneously, they start getting the symptoms. Their mouths might start tingling and um, their eyes itching. They might start breaking out in hives. And the most deadly, of course, is when tissues, especially tissues in the throat, start swelling. Someone who has a severe food allergy and who has to be really on guard at all times will carry with him or her something called an EpiPen. Again, most of you are familiar with with these devices, or you may have one yourself sitting within easy reach as you're listening to this podcast. It's a shot in a, a little disposable injector of a substance called epinephrine which counteracts that swelling. I'm not going to get into the whole science of how food allergies actually work. I would recommend highly though, especially if you're not sure you really understand the history behind this condition or the science, that you look up the book, Don't Kill the Birthday Girl, which I linked to in the resources for this episode. It's a memoir of a young woman who has suffered her whole life with severe food allergies. She also has some environmental allergies too, but we're not even going to get into those. So this young woman has these allergies. She's allergic to dairy, and that includes goat's milk. Apparently some people who are allergic to cow's milk can consume goat's milk, but she can't. She's also allergic to soy, so that cuts out soy milk egg, beef, shrimp, pine nuts, 
cucumbers, mangoes, cantaloupe, macadamias, pistachios, cashews, swordfish, mustard, and honeydew. And so, of course, some of these are fairly easily avoidable. Swordfish doesn't show up too commonly, but some of these other substances are just all over the place, very difficult to avoid, and she has made the ER into kind of her second home over the years. So food allergies are nothing to laugh at. One of the sad consequences of the proliferation of diet fads is that true dietary issues are sometimes belittled. Oh, you say you're allergic to eggs, but really you just don't want to eat animal products, right? You'd be fine if I gave you some eggs. No, no, that's not the case with this condition. I always think about a situation that I caused with a friend who is deathly allergic to eggs. Uh, I use the word deathly. I don't know if she's ever actually had to inject herself with epinephrine, but she has to be very, very careful. And I tell this story because it shows so clearly how the body knows there's no way you can talk yourself out of a food allergy. So my friend, uh, who's named Carolyn, had come to my home. This happened a number of years ago and I had invited several people over for dinner, and then all of us were going to go to a concert afterwards, and the other couple that was coming were vegetarians. So I couldn't serve any meat, and then Carolyn could not eat any eggs. Everybody could eat dairy, though, and no one was going gluten-free or uh, having to be gluten-free. Notice my wording there. And... Um, so I was able to come up with a menu that worked pretty well. And Carolyn checked in with me a couple of days before the dinner. And she said, now, Debbie, you do remember that I can't eat eggs. And I assured her, oh, yes, I've planned a menu that does not have any eggs. And then when she got to my house and we started serving dinner, she again said, now, are there eggs in any of this? And I think you can see very clearly that she's being super careful. And again, I assured her, no, no eggs. So she helps herself to the main course. She gets some salad. She puts some salad dressing on it. My nice homemade creamy Italian salad dressing. And she sits down. She takes a mouthful of salad. I remember this so vividly. She puts her fork down and she says, are there eggs in this? All of a sudden, the realization struck me. Oh, my goodness. Yes, Carolyn, I am so sorry. There are egg yolks in that salad dressing. I used egg yolks as a, an emulsifying agent to keep the oil and the vinegar together. That's why it was creamy Italian salad dressing. And I had worked out this recipe and I had worked out a way to heat up the eggs to 160 so that they would not have any salmonella danger, but that was not enough to disable the fact that they were eggs. I said, oh, are you okay? And she said, well, yes, yes, I, I think so. I just, I won't eat any more salad. I can feel the bubbles coming up in my throat. 
if you're familiar at all with food allergies, you're familiar with that term, feeling the bubbles coming up in your throat. That is the precursor or the start of the throat tissues beginning to swell. Because she had eaten so little and immediately recognized what was going on, she was okay. And we finished the meal and we were all able to go to the concert. But I've thought of that story many times. She had been assured there were no eggs. She was eating with confidence. And yet the receptors in her body that recognized egg proteins as alien were on the alert. I don't know if she has ever had anything that has sent her to the ER, as I say. I've not questioned her, probably as closely as I should have, about her allergy history. She has said before that the reactions that she's gotten have made it impossible for her to have tests in the doctor's office. Her allergist actually did give skin prick tests for food allergies. I'm reminded of another situation, this one in which I was careful. I was helping out with a meal at, uh, for a group at my church and a young man came through the line and I had made brownies. And he said, are there any nuts in the brownies? And I said, oh no, I know how common nut allergies are. So anytime I make a dessert for a crowd, I leave out the nuts. So he said, oh, okay, good. And he took a brownie. And I was curious, and I said, now what would happen if if you ate something that did have nuts in it? And he cheerfully said, oh, I guess I would go to heaven, leaving me rather slack-jawed standing there at the serving table. And he happily went off to his his uh, dinner companions and ate his nut-free brownie. So allergies are nothing to sneeze at, no pun intended. They are very serious. They should be taken seriously. And if you have a food allergy or you have someone in your family or your circle of friends who does, you know how serious these can be. So that's the first, that's the first element that I'm putting in the medical part of the food choice pyramid, allergies. The second one is typically not life-threatening, but it can certainly cause a lot of discomfort, and that's the idea of a food intolerance. Now again, remember, I'm talking about actual medically diagnosable conditions. So this is not one of those food sensitivities that are so popular these days. This is an actual intolerance, meaning that your body cannot deal with the substance properly because it cannot digest it. The most common, probably everyone listening to this again, is familiar with lactose intolerance. And in this situation, the body actually lacks a certain enzyme that is responsible for breaking down lactose, which is a sugar found in milk, into lactase, which is a substance that can be absorbed and used by the body. So if you are someone who is lactose intolerant, then if you ingest dairy and it has lactose in it, I believe some hard cheeses 
and other perhaps fully fermented dairy products, I'm not sure of this, that if, if the dairy includes lactose, then what happens is it's not digested. It passes through your small intestine. It's not broken down. It's not absorbed. It gets into your large intestine where it kind of sits there and ferments. A really lovely picture, isn't it? And people who have this condition therefore experience abdominal pain, gas, bloating, those types of uncomfortable results. So you want to avoid dairy, if at all possible, if you are lactose intolerant. It's uncomfortable. It's not anything that's life-threatening, but it's still something to be avoided. Okay, pretty obvious there. And then the third area, and now we're back into the potentially life-threatening areas, we have food-related diseases, one of which is celiac disease, and one of which, surprisingly enough, if you think about it, is diabetes. Diabetes is, in the end, a food-related disease. But let's talk about celiac disease first. There's a lot of misunderstanding out there about this condition because there's so much floating around out there about how gluten is evil in and of itself. Celiac disease is related to the ingestion of gluten, which is simply a protein found in wheat and to a smaller extent in rye and barley. And for some reason, we don't know why, although there are theories abounding, the body recognizes this gluten as something that triggers an autoimmune response. And this response is triggered in the small intestines, which is where the gluten has ended up in the digestive process. And the lining of your small intestine becomes inflamed. The little fingers or almost like tentacles that stick out from your small intestines called villi become unable to absorb nutrients properly. I'm going to do a whole podcast episode about gluten, so I won't go into any more detail here. But people with severe celiac disease and it hasn't been diagnosed and that small intestine is continuing to be inflamed can actually become very malnourished and in extremely severe cases could potentially die of malnutrition. I was just talking not too long ago to a young woman who's, she and her family have just joined our church. We were at a get together and she has celiac disease and she had it for about 10 years before it was diagnosed and her villi, those small fingers in her intestine, were, she says, practically worn away to nubs. But now that she's gotten on a gluten-free diet, she's been doing a lot better. So this is a, a diagnosable, recognizable medical condition, which I'll be talking more about in, late, in a later episode. And then also diabetes which is going to get its own episode also. Diabetes is partly genetic, but it is definitely linked to diet. 
and I feel that I can speak with a little bit of authority here because I am pre-diabetic myself. Both of my parents were diabetic and I have fought over about the last decade since my wonderful doctor actually read the family history medical history documents that I handed in when I first visited him and he said both of your parents were diabetic we need to do some testing and it turned out that I was hovering on the brink. I have fought in that decade since then to keep myself out of the danger zone out of full-blown diabetes and out of the need to take any kind of medication. So The whole subject of diabetes is immensely complicated. I find it fascinating, and so I hope you'll come back for that episode, which will be later on in the series. But a lot of the choices that I make in what I eat, and most particularly what I do not eat these days, are governed by the fact that I have this potential, at least, this precursor to this very serious disease. And of course, we all know people with severe diabetes can die. They can lose fingers and toes. They can lose eyesight as the excess sugar in the blood damages their blood vessels and circulation is cut off. So let's go now down to the second level of the pyramid. So the severe dangerous point of the pyramid is all of these medical conditions. I'm labeling the middle of the pyramid the moral part of the pyramid, that you are making your food choices based on some code of morality. And into this part of the pyramid would fall all of the people who have a certain religion, belong to a certain type of philosophy, wouldn't have to be a religion, but there are certain things that you are not supposed to eat within the moral confines of this set of beliefs. And so therefore, this is an area of food choice that is governed by what I call conscience and conviction. So anyone who belongs, who believes in a certain religion will very possibly have some food restrictions. Again, what's the most common, the most familiar? A person who follows Jewish teachings and who therefore keeps what is called kosher in uh, its English transliteration. We often think of keeping kosher as simply not eating pork if we're not very well informed. But actually, if you delve into it, and this is something I have done a little bit of research about, I find it, again, fascinating. If you keep a kosher kitchen, you are required to keep milk items and meat items separate. And there's a whole explanation of why this is so that we're not going to dive into right now. But if you keep a kosher kitchen, you have at the very least a separate set, two two different sets of dishes and of pots and pans. 
depending on how big your kitchen is and how big your budget is. You might even have separate refrigerators, separate sinks, separate dishwashers. Not too many people have that, but some people do. I was actually having lunch a couple of days ago with a friend of mine who was raised in a kosher family. And I just thought it was so fascinating. She was telling me how, yes, her mother did indeed keep those two sets of dishes and pots and pans. But not only that, when my friend was helping clean up after dinner, she, her mother would wash the dishes and she would dry. There, there wasn't a dishwasher in that particular kitchen. And she said, so if, if this was a dairy meal, then I would stand on maybe her right side, my mother's right side, because the dairy dishes and pots and pans were on that side of the sink. So I would dry the items and I would put them away. But if it was a meat meal, then I would stand on the other side of the sink and dry the dishes there and put them directly away into those cupboards. So it is no small thing. It takes a high level of dedication to stick to this set of guidelines. You might be a, a Hindu and you would therefore probably follow a vegetarian diet because of certain principles about the sanctity of all life. Uh, if you were Muslim, then you would not eat pork, but you would also have other restrictions. And especially, of course, this would apply to the area of drinking alcohol because a strict, observant Muslim will not ingest alcohol. Now, you also might be someone who has this kind of cultural background and you do not necessarily adhere to the beliefs of that religion anymore, but you want your friends and family to be welcome in your home. So you might say, Mom, Dad, I still am keeping a kosher kitchen. I want you to feel free to come to my home. I still am not going to serve alcohol in the home because I don't want you to feel pressured. I don't want you to feel uneasy as you sit at my dinner table and see glasses of wine and you are Muslim, practicing Muslims. I no longer am, but I will not serve anything on my table that would offend you. You can, you can see how you might do this because of wanting to maintain the relationships in your, in your life. You might also have a matter of conscience that is not necessarily tied to any religion at all, but which centers more on general ethics. You might say, for example, I, I, don't, I, just, I don't think that it's necessary for me to, in a sense, be responsible for the taking of life just so I can eat a piece of fried chicken. You, so you might be a, a vegetarian, but still eat eggs and dairy, or you might be something much more strict, which is vegan, in which you do not participate in any kind of animal products at all, including eggs and dairy. And so people who feel this way, it's a matter of conscience, should not be pressured, should not be made fun of, should not be shamed. They should be respected. And as a Christian myself, I find it very interesting that the Christian New Testament has quite a bit to say in some of the epistles 
about this whole matter of food and conscience, and in particular in the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 14, verses, verse 22 says, The faith that you have, have with respect to yourself before God. Blessed is the one who does not pass judgment on himself by what he approves. And this is very much in the context of what you do and do not eat. So it's saying you are blessed if you have a clear conscience, if you do not condemn yourself for what you're allowing yourself to do. And so this is a broad general principle that applies overall to everything in this category of the pyramid. That if you have a moral objection to a certain food, then you abstain and you should not be in any way made to feel bad about it. You should be respected. But now we get to the third level of the pyramid and this is where things get a little dicey. And this is also where a lot of the future episodes of this podcast are going to center on. And so I've labeled this the mindful section. So the first one, the top of the pyramid, was the medical section. The middle one was the moral section. Now we're into the mindful section. And I'm using that word to mean simply that these are preferences, food preferences. They may be based on something very thoughtful or they may be based on something that's very faddish. There's really a whole range of things. And so this is where all of the various fad diets that are floating around today would fit. A keto diet, a paleo diet, going gluten-free just because you think it's healthier, not because you actually have any health problems associated with it, all that kind of thing. And as I say, there's a huge range here. As I was putting together this material, I was reminded of the very mindful food choices that the associate pastor at our old church in Washington, D.C. made. Very common sense, very based on self-knowledge. So he was a fairly young man when he came to our church. He was in his early 30s. And he had, by the time he was about 35, really developed a weight problem. And he was particularly carrying a lot of weight around the middle, the classic pot belly. And men tend to carry their excess weight abdominally. I'm going to talk about that in a future episode. That type of weight, excess weight, can be very dangerous. It tends to correlate with higher risk of heart disease and stroke. And so apparently, I never actually sat down and asked him, but apparently one day he sat himself down and looked at himself in the mirror and thought, this cannot continue. And so he made some very mindful choices. He did not go on a keto diet, which is almost impossible to do anyway, unless you're under a doctor's supervision. 
But he did decide, and I, I did have a brief discussion with him about this at a, a dinner. He did decide that he probably did better if he cut down on the carbs. And so he started mindfully choosing things to eat. I remember that specific dinner, I believe I was serving lasagna, which of course has layers of pasta in it, the very definition of a high carb food. And I I said something to him about, well, I don't know if he'll be able to eat the lasagna or not. And I, I think he assured me that, yes, he could have a small portion. And then he, he just said, I find that I feel better and I do better when I'm eating somewhat low carb. So a very rational approach. He also started running, which I'm sure was a huge help in his weight loss endeavors. And by the time they left our church, I tell you, that was a trim, fit person in the place of that man who'd been carrying around all that excess weight just a year or two before. He put in place something that worked and he worked at it. So there can be all kinds of levels of extremity in this third layer of the pyramid. But you do need to be aware that just because you have decided, oh, I'm going to go paleo, for instance, I'm not picking on that one, that just comes to mind, that expecting your, your hosts, expecting that harried waiter at the restaurant, whatever, to fulfill your preferences is a little unreasonable. I hope, though, that you will read the quite interesting and pretty funny article that I've posted below from the Washington Post about the woman who tried to fulfill everyone's dietary requirements for a big Thanksgiving family dinner at her home. So ultimately, if you're down at the very bottom of this third layer of the pyramid, then you're in the area where you're going to an extreme that's not sustainable, but you haven't really thought it through. And so that's not a good place to be. But I'm going to stop here for now. And I hope that perhaps this episode has prodded you to think a little bit about how and why you make your own food choices and also how you respond to the food choices of those around you. And that we all need to have an attitude of mutual respect and tolerance, uh, even if we don't agree with each other. And uh, when I say that, I am especially saying that to myself. Come back next week and we'll dive into another aspect of the fascinating world of food. See you then, but thanks for stopping by today.